Father, we are so grateful. Lord, in the irony of ironies, the cross, an instrument of death, through Your power became an instrument of life. Lord, we wonder at the cross. We stand amazed in Your presence for the sacrifice that You have made for us. And we're so deeply grateful. Father, now as we, as we look into Your Word, may we, may we honor You with our attention. And Lord, may You speak through me Your words. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Were the uh, sermon about the messenger and not the message... This would be the shortest sermon you have ever heard. The reason being is I have been deeply and seriously contemplating the notion of patience for about the last two weeks. That's what our sermon about is today. And, and I've done really well. Very patient man. And uh, I come early on Sunday mornings and... Just review my message, and then I'll then I'll leave, and I'll go pick up Barb. And this morning, as I was uh, leaving, and uh, and uh, you know we have this four-way stop here, uh, it was my turn, and so I went. But the person to my right decided he was just going to keep going too, and he was in a great big SUV, and he looks at me like, "What are you going to do?" You know, and I'm in Carolyn's car, and if I was in my truck, I'd tell you what I certainly thought about doing. But anyway, let's just say that my patience uh, exhausted at that moment. And so, anyway, the message, the sermon, is not about the messenger. The sermon is about the message. So, as we, uh, as we look into God's Word today... Uh, we'll see what he has for us. I, I grew up in the Houston area and uh, bounced around a wee bit. Uh, when I wasn't in Sugarland or Pearland, I lived near Griggs and Calhoun in, in Houston. And that's only about four miles away from the Astrodome. And when I was a boy here growing up, that, they were building the Astrodome. They were building it and it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful complex. Some of you uh, graybeards in here, that's uh, in the military what we call old-timers, know that the Houston Astros weren't the Houston Astros until after they moved into the Astrodome. The space uh, race did all kinds of changes. They were the Colt 45s. Some of you may remember that. I was an early fan. They were my first baseball team. Actually, since I've only had two, you know, that's it. But baseball... Uh, has been, through the years, a, an incredibly relaxing sport and pastime for millions of Americans. Fans take time out. Uh, you know, they eat a few hot dogs. They, they cheer on the home team. And uh, growing, growing up and still today, right, the game takes several uh, hours. But that was inconsequential. Nobody cared. People chatted, visited, in general just had a good time. Now, fast forward to today. (laughs) 
People complain about how much time the baseball game takes. It got to go. You make it faster. Change the rules faster, faster, faster. The same is true with football. Snap, snap, snap. Get it through. Get it done. Get it done. Got to go. Got to go. Got to go. Some of us in here love golf. They're even changing the rules of golf. Golf is too slow. Go, go, go. Swing, swing, swing. You don't have to take that pin out of the hole. Just put it and move. Speed, speed, speed. Wow, you know. When did we get to be in such a hurry? Now, I am by disposition, as I said <laughs> earlier, a relatively patient man. However, I get impatient when fast food isn't fast. You know, when microwaves don't micro. <laughs> and when express lanes don't express. I'm reminded of uh, George Carlin when he asked the question, why is the slowest traffic of the day referred to as the rush hour? <laughs> I mean, waiting does, does not suit us as a people. We don't like long lines. We don't like uh, slow drivers in the, in the fast lane. And we, we don't like sermons that go too long. Most people, in fact, would prefer a root canal over a visit to the DMV. And as a society, our, our patience is, in a word, impatient. Now, Cato the Elder, he's an old dead Roman dude, lived a long time ago in the third century. He wrote this, of human virtues, patience is the greatest. Now, I wouldn't have said that. That's what he said. But that phrase has been repeated countless times throughout history. It even ended up in the, in the Canterbury Tales. And while the ability to wait without agitation is an admirable quality, and it may be true of Cato, and it may be true of Chaucer, but <laughs> example number one, is it true of me? Is it true of you, the true of us. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 4. Most of us know this by, by heart by now, perhaps even knew it by heart before we began our long pause to look at it. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. So today, our analysis of uh, verse 4 comes to an important end. And as we look at the word patient, it's one of the most significant words in all of Scripture. The way the Apostle Paul is able just to pack so much meaning into such a short uh, uh, period is, is, is just astonishing. And it is an important word in the original, the original word, the prefix is the word macro. Now, perhaps you've, you, you, you know what that means in English. Well, guess what? It means exactly the same thing in, in Greek. Large scale, overall, the big picture, you know, macroeconomics, macro structure, a macrocosm. So you have all these macro kind of words. And you compare that with micro, right? So like micro means particular, small, tiny, uh, microscope, a microcosm as opposed to a macrocosm. And words along those, a microprocessor. We all had, a lot of you have those 
in your hands right now. And if any of you are glancing down at the soccer game, just feel free to raise it up if they score. For those of you who don't know, we're the, the, what is it, the World Cup? The women's? Yeah, going on now. So, anyway, microprocessor, and that means small. But the second part of the word means, means passion. And so, what it, when you put them together, instead of uh, meaning a, a lot of, a lot of uh, passion, what it actually means is, is the ability to restrain uh, passion. In fact, it's a, an uncanny, it's, it's a uh, God-given ability to restrain that. In Numbers 14, 18, Psalm 86, 15, uh, 103, 8, and Joel uh, 2.13, it refers to the Lord. And in each place, this same word is translated regarding the Lord as slow to anger. Slow to anger. In the New Testament uh, context, it generally, um, and even in some places in the Old Testament, is translated as forbearance, to be able to forbear something. In the New Testament, 1 Timothy 1.16, it says this, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, as the foremost what? Paul was the foremost. Paul considered himself to be the foremost sinner. He considered himself to be uh, deeply impacted by sin, that is, is the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. In other words, God was patient with Paul so that people would be saved. It's an extraordinary notion here because what we find out is that our patience is actually dependent on the patience of God and is in fact a pathway to bring others to Jesus Christ. It's an amazing thing that through the separations that he caused, the economic ruin that he caused, even the deaths that the Apostle Paul caused allowed people to come to Christ. I mean, Paul could have said, God, why? you didn't have to do that. You could have relieved me of this burden sooner. But he didn't say that. He said instead, I am the foremost sinner. According to an old uh, Hebrew story, an ancient story, Abraham was sitting out his, outside of his tent one night and uh, an elderly man uh, came by on a journey. So Abraham uh, rushed out to meet him and said, Come, come into my tent. Here's some water. Here's some food. Sit and dine with me. Spend the evening uh, sleep. And so he gave him the food. He set the, the drink before him and the elderly man just immediately began eating, just scarfing it down. And Abraham said, whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't you, aren't you a worshiper of, of God? Uh, and, and the old man said, I don't, I don't worship uh, anything but fire. And I have no reference for any other uh, God. And so when Abraham heard this, he became uh, incensed and he grabbed the man and he threw him outside the tent into the cold and into... The, the darkness. When the old man is, 
departed, Abraham heard the voice of God. Abraham. Yes, Lord, I, I hear you. Abraham, where's the stranger that came into your home? And Abraham replied, I, I forced him out because he did not worship you. And God answered, I have suffered that man for these 80 years. And you cannot put up with him for one night? <laughs> Matthew 18, 21-35, where we find the parable of the unmerciful servant. We see what Paul was saying in this old story come together and how Christ Himself describes Paul's understanding in a story form when he spoke uh, about the ability to tolerate suffering in order to show His power and His mercy and His love as an example for those who were to believe. I want you to understand that, who were to believe. In other words, at a, a, a small practical level, some of the things that you are going through in your life, God is using in the lives of others so that they might believe. We have no idea what those things are. We don't know, but the Lord, the Lord does this. So this little story, this, the, the unmerciful uh, uh, one in Matthew 18, 21 through 35 reads like this. You have to understand the context in the beginning. Then, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? <laughs> Peter was being real generous. Uh, I think the rabbis only required like three or four. Peter was like, I'm all above that. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him about ten thousand talents was brought to him. Just think, you owe a billion dollars. That would be about the right comparison. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children, all that he had, and repayment be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have, here's our word, have patience with me and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion for him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. Okay, what is that? A day's wages. And he seized him and began to choke him. <laughs> he laid hands on him and began to choke him and he said, pay, pay up, pay the money. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and threw him into prison until he should pay back what he was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and they went uh, uh, to and told the Lord all that had happened. Then summing him, 
The Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. The text teaches us two primary things about sin and salvation. First, salvation is utterly, completely, totally beyond our capacity to repay. Anyone who holds any notion that they can gain merit or favor with God regarding their salvation is deluded. That is simply not true. You cannot. It is utterly beyond our capability. I mean, and it tells us that throughout history were all of our sufferings put to one single account, it doesn't come close to what Christ paid for us. It's just here that we can see what Paul was talking about when he said that he was the foremost sinner. And we should be able to echo the same, that we ourselves are foremost because without an understanding of our need for salvation and the constant grace of God, we simply cannot appropriate or even appreciate the grace of God and have the capacity to understand His forgiveness for us and our ability to forgive others. And so it turns out that biblically speaking, biblical patience is more than simply long-suffering. It is that, but it has more to do with salvation and forgiveness than we first perceived. And our interest in this word is, is compounded because it specifically has to do with one other thing, and that is something that keenly interests us all, the Lord's return. Last week, we learned that God's kindness leads to repentance. I might add that this week, that God's patient kindness leads to repentance. James 5.7 tells us to be patient, to establish our hearts, not to grumble. Why? Because the coming of the Lord is at hand. That's why he told them. He was addressing the same thing that Peter addressed in his second epistle in chapter 3 and verse 4. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. James and Peter are actually addressing the same issue and it's an issue as relevant now as it was then, patiently waiting for the Lord's return. I don't think we hear too much about that. We may not even think too much about that. But the Lord's return is something that is real. It's something that is imminent. You know, up until Constantine, the entire church, the whole of the church, uh, was premillennial. That is, the, that they, they believed that the Lord would gather uh, the believers to Himself and that the Jews would once again be at the center of God's work on the earth and following some great and 
cataclysmic events, Christ would reign for a thousand years. After that, the eternal kingdom would be ushered in. And these believers that Peter and James were writing to were certainly in a cataclysm. Let me read something about what was going on uh, with them. Tacitus tells us he was a uh, uh, second century, uh, right, third century, I guess, uh, tells us in the, the summer of a, uh, A.D. 64, Rome suffered a terrible fire that burned for six and days and seven nights, and it consumed almost three quarters of the city of Rome. The people accused uh, the emperor Nero for the devastation, complaining, uh, claiming that he set the fire in order to make room for new and more modern buildings that he could uh, build. And so he wanted to. He didn't want to have anything to do with that. So in order to deflect these ap- uh, uh, accusations and placate the people, Nero laid blame for the fire on to Christians. The emperor, uh, he ordered the arrest of a number of Christians and he got them to turn on others and pretty soon the entirety uh, of Christianity was suspect. And so they began to gather them together. They began to put them in the arenas. He goes on, and on, and he says, and he put the, them to death in the most horrific manner for the amusement of the citizens of Rome. In their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport, for they were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs or nailed to crosses or set fire to. And when the day waned, burned to serve for the evening lights. The persecution started under Nero. There were some minor things before Nero, but the major persecution started under Nero and continued unabated, depending on where you were at geographically, until 325 A.D. And that's where Tertullian's remark, or his writings, he wrote after this, but this is where this comes from. There was a second century uh, believer, Tertullian, who wrote, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. You know, historians estimate that about 2 million, that by 325, is about 2 million Christians had been killed for no other reason than their faith. And that means that from Nero's time, I did a little math, I don't do public math, but I, I, I'll do private math. So I did a little math, and you can check me on that. Nero's persecution from the beginning of that until Constantine was 257 years. That translates to 2,251,320 hours or 1,321,320 approximately one believer was killed every hour for their faith for 257 years. Now after Constantine, and the message is not about those theological pieces, but they are important to understand the notion of patience here. After Constantine, there was a shift away from the historical and towards the metaphysical, i.e. the reality of the Lord's return to the Lord's return being something a little more spiritual, a little more amorphous. 
And so, because they had to figure out what this meant that the kingdom with Constantine was now Christian. He was a Christian and the the sanctioned religion was Christianity. How in the world does that work? So they tried to... They tried to figure that out. What it led to was a wholesale abandonment of premillennialism, which didn't have a resurgence until the middle of the 19th century. Now, all of that's background for what I'm going to say. So, if you were wondering about the history of this, I'll tell you right now. The question is, we would say, unless you're informed, you would say, that the persecution of Christians has ceased. Have they? How many of you are familiar with I Am Noon? How many? Raise your hand. Hi, I want to see your hands. Three? Four? Noon is the letter that begins with the for Nazarene. Right, that's the letter that uh, ISIS or ISIL or whatever you want to call them would paint on the doors of Christian homes to let everyone know that they were Christian. The property owners, the people, were publicly identified as Christ followers, and they were given a chance to die or convert. Usually, there's a tax you can pay. They weren't quite that nice. I suppose some of the very wealthy could pay, could pay the tax that they want. But they, uh, courageous believers, some stood and died. Many fled with just the clothes on their backs. And like Nero, they were killed horrifically. Beheadings, burnings, crucifixions. Payment to escape could be made by allowing your daughter's as young as 10 years of age, to marry or to be taken by the men. These atrocities have produced generational scars. Generational scars. Patience for the Lord's return for those people has taken on an entirely new dimension. The dimension of the early church. Globally, persecution against Christians is quite real. You are aware, you may not be, I'll make you aware right now, that, and I use only the most conservative estimates. There are some fairly, uh, I'm not going to say wild because I trust some of the organizations that put out these numbers, but I've used the most conservative numbers that I could find based on research. And that is this, one Christian, today, One Christian dies every hour. The same amount that were killed under the persecutions in Rome. Yes, it's true, they weren't as geographically combined. You had Rome. This is globally, but nevertheless, the numbers of people martyred for their faith not just because they happen to be Christian and somebody blew up a bank and they happen to be in it. No, these are people who are martyred for their faith, a Christian, every hour. Most Christian towns in Syria and Iraq are entirely hollowed out. Hollowed out. 
nobody there. There are villages, entire villages, with no one there. There's one village that I that I looked at a little more deeply than some of the others. It's occupied entirely by one man in his 30s and his mother. An entire village. And when asked whether they would stay and try to rebuild, he says, he says, why? How could we stay? There's no one for me to marry. You know, and if I marry, they will not come back with me. In Mosul, where Christians lived for 1,800 years, Few, if any, Christians remain at all. And for the first time, just a few years ago, in an unbroken chain of 1,800 years, there were no communion services held there since the time of Tertullian. What would he say now? I think he might say something along the lines that the blood of the martyrs is the voice of the church. But I tell you what, it's barely heard. It's barely heard And it needs to be amplified. And it needs to be told to be what? Patient. (laughs) While the context is the tribulation in Revelation 6.11, nevertheless, we see a small glimpse of what the Lord might say to these people. Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. Again, a different context, but it does give you a notion of what the Lord would say to these Iraqi and Syrian believers. The same thing that He would say to those martyred during the Great Tribulation. Be patient. Those James and John were writing to were growing weary and fearful and impatient of the Lord's return. And many of them wanted to see their circumstances change, but who wouldn't? One might argue that they were being selfish, but I think we should have a measure of compassion and sympathy for them. I mean, Christians were being slaughtered in the arena. We get upset when we see a bumper sticker. We see a little Darwin fish. Ooh, persecution. They were being slaughtered in the arena. They were being covered in tar and set on fire. They were being punished socially and economically. Being a Christian was not politically correct. And many suffered through it. And they thought that the end times, and rightly so, were upon them. And yet the Lord had not returned. What was going on? What was wrong? And so Peter had to firmly but lovingly say something to them. In 2 Peter 3, 8 and 9, he said this, Do not forget this one thing. The Apostle Peter is telling them, told them, and is telling us something. Where else does Peter say one thing? Don't forget this one thing. You know what the one thing is? It's an amazing thing. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow. When we're suffering, what is it that we do? Oh Lord, how long, how long will you let me stay in this state before you relieve my suffering? 
Peter says, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. Indeed, he is patient. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Now we're back to patience and salvation and forgiveness. What advice does Peter go ahead and give? He says this to the churches who are marginalized, who are silenced, who are persecuted. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should you be? Peter understands and reminds us that the reason we should be patient and the reason that we can be patient is that God is on His throne. Why do we wait in line at the bank? Why don't we just rush the counter? Why do we wait in line at a fast food restaurant? Why don't we just rush, go and get it? Why? Why do we wait? Why do we stand in line? I'll tell you why we stand in line, in case you didn't know. It's because we understand that the resources will be there for us when it becomes our turn. Only people who are fearful that there are no resources remaining want to grab the resources. And so we say, God, give it to me now. The reason we can be patient and say, Lord... In your time is because we know that He is on His throne. He does does not mark time the way we mark time. We can wait patiently in line because we know that the resources are there. What kind of people ought we to be in the in-between time? I'm reminded of Tolkien. For those of you uh, who may not be aware, I'm a I'm a huge fan Tolkien and in the his words in the Lord of the Rings I I wish it need not have happened in my time he's talking about the ring I didn't want the ring I don't want anything to do with the ring I didn't want it to come to me in the first place So do I said Gandalf and so do all who live to see such times But that is not for them to decide. You got no choice what body you were born in. You got no choice what country you were born in, what economic or social status. None whatsoever. That is not for you to decide. But all we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. We should live holy and godly lives acquiring the fruits of the Spirit. In the same time, we find ourselves waiting and sometimes suffering as we wait. Patiently there, we should be growing. Again, Peter says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. If we put efforts into these things, into living a holy and godly life, guess what? We're not going to worry about the, what the world thinks of us. It's certainly not as much anyway. And we're going to be conforming ourselves to the image of Jesus Christ in the time that we have remaining. 
Jesus himself asked this important question in Luke 18.8. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? We think of patience as being passive. We sit, we wait. It's not. It's, it's, it's active. First, it's active, as uh, uh, G. Campbell Morgan said, it's active under command. Second, it's readiness for any new command. And third, the ability to do nothing until a new command is given. The great New England preacher, Philip Brooks, was a man. He was noted for his poise and his uh, quiet uh, manner and uh, what we would call today his non-anxious presence. Uh, but there was a time where he was pacing around like a, like a lion and, and one his, his friends said, what is the trouble? What is bothering you? What is consuming your, your mind? And he said this. He said, the trouble is, I'm in a hurry, but God isn't. <laughs> I mean, we've all felt that way. Some of the greatest missionaries in history, and just give you uh, a few things in closing. William Carey, seven years before a single convert, seven years. Adoniram Judson, seven years. In New Zealand, took nine years. Tahiti, 16 years. Before a single soul was saved. Thomas Akempis described the kind of patience with these words. He said, He deserves not the name of patient who is only willing to suffer as much as he thinks proper and for whom he pleases. The truly patient one asks nothing from whom he suffers, whether his superior, his equal, or his inferior, but from whomever or how much or how often wrong is done to him, he accepts it. All from the hand of God and counts it as gain. God is on the throne. Suffering is not meaningless. Being patient is not without Value. Daily committing ourselves to God. Committing our situation into His hands. The purposes of God develop slowly because His grand designs are never hurried. They are always precisely on time. Father, we thank You for today. We thank You for the cross. It is indeed a wonder to us. And Lord, we... I, I don't even begin to know how to frame the word patience in terms of Jesus Christ who knew from eternity past that at some point in this material universe He would come and He would die on the cross to give us life. Thank you. We praise you, we honor you today through Christ our Lord. Amen.